No one in this day and age deserves to suffer like that. It's outrageous, it's uncalled for, it's inhumane, it's barbaric, and it is an attempt at genocide. It's an attempt to wipe a, a people and a culture off the map. That's actor Liev Schreiber on the horror of Putin's war against Ukraine and the pressing need for more humanitarian relief. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Evil cannot be trusted. At the United Nations and in Washington this week, President Volodymyr Zelensky made an urgent appeal for international support. When hatred is weaponized against one nation, it never stops there. President Zelensky's plea comes a year and a half into the war, and as the UN faces several other global crises, and as some critics at home advocate for pulling back U.S. support. Among those rallying behind Ukraine is Liev Schreiber, known for his roles in Ray Donovan, Spotlight, and the new film Golda, where he plays Henry Kissinger. Madam Prime Minister, I am first an American, second I am Secretary of State, and third I am a Jew. You forget that in Israel we read from right to left. <laughs> the grandson of a Ukrainian immigrant, Schreiber launched Blue Check Ukraine, an organization that helps donors deliver funds to humanitarian groups on the ground. I see people that I think we can help, and we found a way to do it, and that's important to me. He has traveled to the country and met with Zelensky and seen the damage the war has done. Not all great actors are great leaders. That's right. They're not, and most of them aren't. There have been a few. But this one is. Schreiber doesn't hide his frustration with those who do not recognize what is at stake. It's, a, it's an existential situation. So it's so hard for me to listen to people say that it's bullshit or that it's not happening or that it's not real. But why then is he so confident Ukraine will prevail? Having gotten involved with them, I have some feelings about it. They're tough as hell. They're tough as hell. Liev Shriver, welcome to Firing Line. Thank you for having me. Your maternal grandfather immigrated to the United States from Ukraine. I understand that he rarely spoke of his upbringing, but that you embarked on a search for his village in Ukraine after he died. While you didn't ultimately locate his village, did you gain any insights from that search about your Ukrainian heritage? Yeah, I, I think probably the, the main one was the kind of diasporic nature of um, my grandfather, his people, my mother's people. Um, my grandfather is actually born in Wuj, Poland. Um, it's my mother's grandparents that are from Kiev and Odessa. But my grandfather grew up uh, in a small village that the borders shifted a lot at this point, uh, that was considered uh, Ukraine called Tomashbil, and that's the village I wasn't able to find. Did that search influence your work and your sense of identity? My work is, that's my work. My work is this like constant search for my own identity and, and trying things on, but pretty much everything I've ever done or written has had something to do with my grandfather in one way or another. When Russia launched its full-scale invasion into Ukraine in February of 2022, the sight of Ukrainians volunteering to go to the front lines, um, you say resonated with you deeply. And, and I heard you say 
it felt very American to you. How so? Well, you know, I had just finished doing seven years of Ray Donovan, and I'm sitting on the couch with my kids, and I'm watching these incredibly brave but nervous-looking men my age saying goodbye to their wives and children and, and, and crying and being on a couch with my two kids thinking, what have I ever done <laughs> that amounts to anything like what these men are prepared to do for their families? And it struck me as just barbaric that they would need to risk their lives in this day and age in that way. Um, but it also was this strange feeling of it's an opportunity to say something to my children about who we are as Americans, who we are as Americans of Ukrainian descent, who we are as democracy-loving people. And it, looking at these middle-aged men getting on this bus, I, I thought about my grandfather who... And the men, for instance, of the Spanish-American Civil War, who saw fascism and without an organized army, left their families to go and push back. I thought of the generation of men in World War II that liberated us from the Nazis. And uh, what an incredible period that was in our history and in the forming of our principles and it seemed to me like this was a real line in the sand that the Ukrainian people, and in particular Zelensky, were drawing. And it was something that I wanted my kids to notice. I didn't know how at the time. And then some friends called me because they assumed I was Ukrainian, which I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm as American as anything. Um, uh, and I, I didn't know where to send them because they wanted to help. And so I, I thought of the things that people normally think of, Red Cross or UNICEF. Look, I don't know. And, uh, and then one friend asked me if I would get involved kind of doing um, a kind of man on the street helping Ukrainians tell their stories. And that just seemed really inappropriate to me at the time. So I said, no, if you want to help them, give them some money. And he had a friend um, who has some experience in humanitarian aid, uh, who is one of the co-founders of Blue Check with me, Jason Cohn. He was uh, one of the directors of uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders for a long time and now works with Robin Hood. And he said, how serious were you are about raising money for this? And I said, well, I guess now that you've called me on it, I have to be. And so we jumped into what we thought would be useful. And that was, we started Blue Check. Uh, most people know you for your roles in, on television, also in the movies. But I want to stick in this discussion to what you've done with Ukraine and the focus you put on Ukraine more broadly. Um, you founded Blue Check Ukraine one month after the invasion of Ukraine. And I'm curious how you decided to create an organization that would vet and identify organizations already existing on the ground to then channel funds from the United States to directly. How did you figure that this is, this is the model, this is the way that you could have impact? Well, the fair answer to that question is there are people who are a lot smarter than me who are helping me get there. Um, another thing that happened is that, you know, uh, the, uh, our team, the team of people who were talking about this were like action-oriented people. So literally three days after our conversation about what should we do, 
I got on a plane to Poland and my friend Jose Andres set me up working in one of his kitchens in Przemysl. And uh, Jason, Murphy and Michael uh, set about finding NGOs for me to meet with inside Ukraine and get a sense of who was doing the work, what, what was the work and who was actually doing it. Um, humanitarian Outcomes, which is a watchdog organization for uh, humanitarian aid, published a couple reports. One last June, where they said that of the $2.6 billion, this is last June, that had been sent to Ukraine, only 6 million of that, 2.6, had actually gone to the NGO, the frontline NGOs in Ukraine who were doing the work. And that's not to say that these larger international organizations aren't doing great work because they are, but because it's such an acute situation and we have to respond quickly, the importance of working with people on the ground in Ukraine, in other words, localizing aid, finding, because it's, it's the people in the country that are doing the work, right. finding ways to get them directly the money that they need and the support that they need to do their work was the solution that we came up with. And that's why we, uh, that's why we went into Ukraine and, and uh, came out of that with our first seven or eight partners. Your Blue Check focuses on um, medical assistance, mental health, organizations that are providing support for children, providing food, um, providing shelter. You've called the needs fluid. Yeah. Because they've changed mm. from the beginning of the war to now. Yeah. What are you seeing are the most pressing needs now? And how has that changed from the beginning? It changes a lot. Um, um, I, you know, for instance, a great example is the Kokova Dam. Um, uh, when the Russians exploded the Kokova Dam, it created a huge crisis. And there's a bunch of different components to that. Obviously, there's the need for sheltering and evacuations. Um, but a big thing that, that people weren't really immediately aware of, and thankfully one of our partners was, is water. They need fresh water. So one of our partners, Project Victory, went in and it was immediately delivering truckloads. These guys are veterans, so they have experience uh, in, in combat areas. These, so they're, they're working out great on the front lines of this conflict. And these guys went in right away with trucks full of water and are now installing water filtration systems. So once you kind of stick your finger in the dam, as it were, then you have time to kind of look at the bigger sort of civil sector issues like you know, uh, children in education, uh, uh, children are going through a lot of trauma, um, uh, uh, getting training to their teachers, to their parents, to them on how to help them understand this. It's a huge component of this. Um, another thing that every time you watch the news and you see a, another town sort of destroyed by missiles, inevitably it's an elderly woman walking in front of the camera bleeding. And I think what people need to understand is that um, the men, if they're the right age, are already fighting. The women and children have left these frontline areas uh, to go to the cities. Most of them, you know, IDPs and places like Kiev and uh, Lviv, which are operating way past capacity. So we have an organization called Starenki who works specifically to help elderly people because it's the elderly people that are staying in these frontline villages who are saying, what else is there to my life? This is all I have right now let them come, you know, they have these defiant attitudes towards the Russians and sure enough, more often than not, they don't survive these uh, attacks. Um, so for us, it, it became, you know, and, and talking to friends and partners, there are people like Jose who are doing good work there. And 
um, it became pretty clear that we needed to come up with a diverse enough portfolio of partners so that uh, we could be able to react to any situation. And um, we're feeling like we have now 22 and we're, we're pretty confident about their ability to, to, to touch pretty much everything. How do you track the utilization of funds that go to these organizations that you've vetted? Well, first of all, we wouldn't exist without the pro bono services of Ropes and Gray and Integrity Risk uh, International, who are in, are incredible partners who do all the verifying and vetting for us. Uh, obviously, because of the perception and the climate of corruption that people talk about in regards to Ukraine, it's extremely important that we really are very, very careful about how we spend the money and how we account for it. Um, and right now, uh, it's, it's four guys with day, with day jobs, but um, it's us interacting with our partners and getting reports from them and videotape and, and footage. And uh, uh, we also have Ropes and Gray and Integrity Risk International helping us. You know, you mentioned corruption. One of the challenges for continuing in the West to keep the focus and support on Ukraine is to also persuade supporters of the effort that corruption isn't undermining uh, their efforts, especially U.S. efforts to support the Ukrainians. How big of a problem is corruption in Ukraine from your observations? From my observation, I think it's probably a bigger problem in perception than it is in reality. But I won't, uh, I, I don't want to under, understate it. And uh, I think uh, this administration in particular, President Zelensky, has been pretty open to criticism on this point and is, has kind of made it known that if anybody has any information or, or sources that suggest that there's anything happening corrupt, he's prepared to act on it and wants that information as being fairly open about it so from what I've seen. In 2022, mm. Transparency International ranked Ukraine as the second most corrupt country in Europe after Russia. And Zelensky has fired more than a dozen senior officials due to allegations of graft and impropriety. So what do you say to critics who have legitimate concerns about corruption in Ukraine and the country's ability to reform? It's a long trip. And what I would say is, they should look at Maidan and they should look at 2014. Uh, people like Natalie Juresko, the extraordinary uh, uh, ex-finance uh, minister for Ukraine, who had the unenviable job of coming in to that country and trying to turn around what was a system that was essentially really following in the model of the old Soviet system, because that's how the government has been controlled for so many years. Um, I don't know if people realize this, but Ukraine, in, in more ways than one, has been struggling to get out from under the shadow of its Soviet uh, neighbor for quite some time, and now the Russian Federation. And there have been several regimes that have arguably been a lot more loyal to Moscow than they have been to the people of Ukraine. And I would, I would point up Yanukovych and the Ukrainian people's desires to join the European system and the Western trade uh, system and his uh, his sort of disappointing response to that, which ultimately resulted in that uh, Maidan revolution, which resulted in him catching a helicopter to Crimea and then back to Russia, which shows where he came from. 
So there is this system, this bureaucratic uh, kind of arcane system that people like Natalie and people like President Zelensky have been trying to turn around. And it's very, very difficult to change. But I think they're doing a, a pretty great job, at least from my perspective. Um, uh, I've had uh, 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 an opportunity to spend time with Natalie and, and, and I've read some of the things that she's written on the subject. And I think that uh, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable what they've been able to achieve in such a short period of time. And certainly I think the president's openness to allegations and pursuing them suggests that this isn't something he's trying to sweep under the rug. This week, President Zelensky delivered his first in-person address to the United Nations General Assembly. And he raised alarms about Russia's weaponization of food, Russia's weaponization of nuclear energy, uh, Russia's kidnapping of children. Um, and he appealed to the global community to continue supporting Ukraine in this fight. The goal of the present war against Ukraine is to turn our land, our people, our lives, our resources into a weapon against you, against the international rules-based order. Many seats in the General Assembly Hall may become empty empty if Russia succeeds with its treachery and aggression. The main thing is that it is not only about Ukraine. He also said Russian actions are clearly a genocide. How effectively do you think he made the case to the global community to stay involved in supporting Ukraine? Well, if his own level of risk and passion and emotion isn't a sign of something, I don't know what is. I don't know anyone in my own brief history on this planet that I've ever noticed who has sacrificed and risked as much as uh, President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people have. It's, a, it's an existential situation. Um, I also know for a fact from our partners on the ground that what he's saying is true, that what's happening in the agricultural, this is the breadbasket of the world and the way that will impact both us in the West in terms of our trade and our food resources, and in particular, more vulnerable communities like Africa, where, where, this, where the Ukrainian grain is really, really essential. He's, he's absolutely right that in my opinion, that, that Putin is weaponizing these resources. And I know that for a fact because one of our partners is a guy named Ryan Hendrickson, who's an ex-Special Forces officer who was injured by a landmine in, uh, in Afghanistan and now makes it his life work to go to other countries where there are mines that need to be removed and taking care of it. And he does this extraordinary operation uh, by himself uh, and he's put some friends together and, and now gaining some momentum with the ministries in Ukraine through, through help from us and other people. Um, but it's all ag land. Look, they've laid mines throughout all these ag lands so that these farmers who go out on their combines and tractors who are going out just to do their work to get the grain that they need to get for the rest of the world and for Ukraine and every, every other country that, that so desperately needs it are then killed in the process of doing that. So... I know that that's happening. I know intimately because we're funding the work yeah. to try to make it safe for these farmers yeah. to go back into their fields. Um, 
Yeah, I also know for a fact that one of our partners, Save Ukraine, uh, is so far has rescued 176 kids that they've pulled uh, back into Ukraine, kids that were kidnapped by by Russians and fed a steady diet of hate and and violence towards their own country, and that these kids then have to be brought back to Ukraine, given a place to rehabilitate to. To given a, as 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 Mikola says, a loving environment where they can be reminded of who they are and where they come from, and that and and that they are not um, they are not at war with anybody. That they are just children, and it's uh, I know because I see these operations. So it's so hard for me to listen to people say that it's bullshit or that it's not happening or that it's not real because I know I've seen. I've seen the kids. I've seen the. I've seen the farmers with one leg. Olga Rudnyeva and the Superhumans, or a group that is that is helping these people with prosthetics. I've seen the work. I've seen the people, and they're incredibly strong and resilient. And everyone said it a hundred times, but it's got to stop. President Zelensky also addressed the, the Security Council at the UN, and he made the case to the Security Council that the UN was effectively ineffective at securing countries' borders, that Ukraine is more effective at supporting the UN Charter because it is defending its own borders in a way that the UN is not able to. And, and he pointed out that the Russian veto on the Security Council actually undermines the UN's charter because they are their aggressors in this situation. I think that makes perfect sense, don't you? I mean, that seems, it seems really plain. He, what do you think about what's so clear is that Zelensky has to go to the UN and then has to, feels, feels compelled to point out the UN's own weakness to do anything about the situation. It's, a, it's, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to speak constructively about it because it feels outrageous. It feels frustrating. and. You know, I'm not a politician. I'm not, I'm not, I don't get paid to be reasonable. So I'm allowed to be. In fact, I get paid to be irrational most of the time. <laughs> Just pretending so to be irrational, yeah. right? So I'm allowed to be irrational. But one of the things that I've learned from my partners and the people that I work with in Ukraine, and especially my pal Jason, who's helped me so much on Blue Check, is that optimism's important. Calmness is important in problem solving. Finding solutions is more important than uh, shouting down problems. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that the president's uh, speech at the UN Assembly will, will begin that process. The value of the UN has been debated for decades, including on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. when he hosted U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. The fact is that uh, that place is a good parliament. Debate is what that place can, in fact, do. What it can't do is, is legislate. What it can't do is act, and it has no such powers, and its pretension to those powers are what get it in most trouble. But precisely as a setting in which to encounter what you've called moral reality, uh, it seems to me that's a place where we should be and should be... There he's arguing that the value of the UN is that it creates this platform where you can make a moral argument mm. for the whole world to see. 
That's right. I do think that's the value of it. And I think that's what President Zelensky has done. I do think it is, um, it's a forum and, and uh, there is tremendous potential um, to elicit the opinions, the feelings, the support of, uh, of all of these collective countries. You know, it's, a lot of this there's, it's, it's, it's really simple. I think if, if you just look back to the, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, and that uh, in an attempt at nuclear non-proliferation, we uh, asked, uh, we, the Americans and the Russians together, asked the third largest nuclear power at that time, which was Ukraine, to give up their arsenal in exchange for... Uh, uh, our solemn promise to protect the sovereignty of their borders. We've kept up our end of the bargain so far, and that's what this current administration is trying to do because we've actually signed that memorandum. Um, Ukraine gave up its ability to defend itself in exchange for our promise to defend the sovereignty of its borders. Those borders were crossed in 2014 with the annexing of Crimea, and now with the full-scale invasion uh, by Russia, a country that swore to protect it. So it just couldn't be any clearer than that. And I think that that's the sort of thing voiced in the platform of the UN that is incredibly important for everyone to remember, not just to be supportive of Ukraine, but to be aware of the dangers that are out there when dealing with Russia. President Biden also addressed the UN General Assembly. He argued and emphasized that U.S. support uh, had to continue to, for Ukraine and that the threat of Russian victory could pose a threat to sovereignty everywhere. He mentioned Ukraine finally 20 minutes into his 30-minute speech. Was President Biden's message strong enough? You know, I, I should reiterate here that I, I'm terrible at politics what I understand about uh, this coming election is that Biden needs to be very careful about what he says to the American people and the order in which he states it. And I think he has advisors who are far more intelligent than me who said, put Ukraine 15 minutes in. And I, I believe that there's a reason for that. What, what, I'm, what I'm not as comfortable with is the fact that there is a reason for that. That there is a faction in this country who is denying a country that's fighting for its sovereignty and the same values, democratic values, that, that, that we fight for here and, and denying that relationship. And, and, and not willing to understand the symbiotic relationship that we have to Ukraine and what would happen, what will happen, and I think that was the president's, that was Zelensky's point in his speech in the UN. What will happen should they lose the fight that many people believe they're fighting for us as well? To what do you attribute the decline in enthusiasm for support for Ukraine that you see piping up on both the left and the right in this country? It's a hard, it's a troubling time in the world. There are a lot of issues, you know. It's a troubling time to raise children, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think people are tired. Yeah. 
I think people are really, really tired. That's why, you know, people throw around the phrase Ukraine fatigue. How do you combat it? Go see them. That's how I do it. But for 300 million Americans. For 300 million 320 Americans. 320 million Americans who well, can't go to Ukraine. Right I'll tell now. you, this is something that, that, that I say a lot, but it bears repeating. I think that um, America is a nation of grandchildren. I don't think you'll find many Americans who don't have a grandparent who didn't come from somewhere else, who didn't claw their way out of some authoritarian regime or some bad situation so they could come here and find freedom of expression, religion, whatever else they wanted, and to, to, to find a way to give their kids the best opportunity that they could possibly give them so that you and I could be sitting here doing this rather than fighting in the front lines in Donbass. Yep. And I think we owe a debt to our grandparents to say we care about the values that they fought for because we wouldn't be here without those values, frankly. And uh, I think that's what we need to remember, or at least what I want my kids to learn from this, is that's what it is to be American. That those are the freedoms that exemplify who we are and what we're capable of. You know, we're still the greatest country in the world because we're still the place where everyone else wants to come to give their kids a shot. So let's keep being the place that gives our kids a shot. And that means no matter where you're from, you've got a shot here. And that's what the Ukrainian people are fighting for. You've been to Ukraine several times. Uh, you've been on the ground. Um, what have you observed about the will and resolve? of the Ukrainian people, because you have maintained your optimism that they will triumph in this battle. Okay, I'm gonna say some things that, 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 that are, are, I shouldn't be saying, because the reality is I'm not here to do anything political. What I'm trying to do in Ukraine is really about humanitarian aid. That's all I came here to do. That's all I, that's all I got involved with this for. It has nothing to do with my grandparents or anything. It just, I see people that I think we can help and we found a way to do it, and that's important to me. Having said that, having gotten involved with them, I have some feelings about it. They're tough as hell. They're tough as hell. Um, I'm a huge boxing fan, and you only need to look at Alexander Usyk or Vasily Lomachenko to know that these people are some of the greatest fighters in the world. And in my opinion, Putin made a huge mistake picking this fight. Personally, that's one thing I think about it, knowing the Ukrainian people. The other thing I feel about it is no one in this day and age deserves to suffer like that. No one in this day and age deserves to worry about their children like that. It seems barbaric and there's no need. It's, it's, uh, it's outrageous, it's uncalled for, it's inhumane, it's barbaric, and it is an attempt at genocide. It's an attempt to wipe a, a people and a culture off the map. And that's, that's, that's not how we do things in this day and age. Um, you've said you're hugely proud of American democracy. Your um, patriotism comes through in your answers to these questions. Um, but you've also expressed, even though you say you're not political, you've expressed a concern about the decline in political discourse. Yeah. And the ability of individuals to be on different sides of political issues and transcend those political differences and see it eye to eye. It reminds me of your Showtime series, Ray Donovan, where your father was played by 
former President Trump's most famous Hollywood celebrity, John Voight. I love John. And you say that. You say you love him despite, you know, political differences. I love him probably because of our political differences. How do you take that and share that idea more broadly? I don't know. I mean, I love John. I can't say why I love John. He's nuts, and but he's an extraordinary actor. He's a dear friend. He's one of the most compassionate people I've ever met. And I know that when push comes to shove, he'd lay down his life for someone he cares about. And I, I, I trust him. Um, How do we get more of that? I don't know. Into political discourse. I don't know. We've screwed up and we've got to figure out some way to backtrack civility into this process. Like how to do this with a little dignity, how to, how to respect each other. I mean, you got, look, you're doing it. You're, you and your husband. I mean, you should tell us how to do it. Uh, those are the, the couples like you. I go, well, that's ask them how they do it. Carville, ask those guys. I don't really know anything about it. I'm just an actor. But you, but you, but you sat here and you said, it's because you love him. Yeah. And, and I, it strikes me, it seems to me that there's some if kind of a com- human com- component. If, if push came to shove, I'd lay my life down for him. And I think he'd do the same for me. And I think there's something about that that's, I hate to say it because it sounds corny. That's very American. And I think that's what we need to do for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now. Because we need to have that kind of pride and, and compassion. I have one more for you. Uh, we are very close, apparently, to the end of the writer's strike. Mm. It is reported that potentially there is light at the end of the tunnel in the negotiations. Um, what issue that's been on the negotiating table is the most important to you? I think the AI issue really needs to be addressed. Um, as we're seeing now, the ability of these machines to produce uh, derivative material, which is really what we do as actors and writers, we produce derivative material, but that's how we get paid. And if this machine can do it and you don't have to pay it, uh, we got a problem. I think from the actor's perspective, there's very, there's very real concrete issues, not so much for people like me who have had relatively successful careers and are okay at this point in their lives, but to the millions of day players and, 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 and people who do extra work and things like that, they're suggesting that they be scanned and that the, the, uh, the, the, the people who own those scans own them in perpetuity, which means that now with the new technologies, you can use that person a thousand different ways in different scenarios. And that person will get one fee one day for usually something like 300 bucks, right? And they're also waiting tables and, 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 and tending bar, picking up work where they can. And it's just, it's our, our, it's our job as, as a union to protect all of our members. And I, I also think uh, that applies to the writers as well. The jobs are getting further and fewer between. So we have to make sure that um, we support our, our union. Final thought on Ukraine. Um, you've balked at the idea of making a movie about this episode in Ukrainian history, but perhaps in the future, as you have witnessed war on the ground and its effects on the population. Have you thought about how cinematography might capture this moment in a future effort? 
I have. We just sent the first cut of our documentary uh, portrait of the president to his office and uh, uh, and we're hoping to uh, release it as soon as possible. It's a documentary it's on a documentary, President Zelensky. Yes, on President Zelensky, yes. First Lady Madame Zelensky is in it as well and uh, and a lot of the a lot of his uh, uh, people from his former company and and just talking to them about the evolution of this um, former actor from a small steel town in uh, southern Ukraine into this uh, extraordinary person who, who who took on the Russian Federation. You you've called him extraordinary, mm-hmm. and you've said that being an actor was perhaps the perfect training to be the leader in war. Why is that? Um, actors aren't good at much, but what they're good at in the course of a narrative is choices. That's what defines a performance. How am I going to play this moment? How am I going to play that moment? And what's that going to add up to in the overall narrative arc of the piece? And I think it took an actor, and this is a, a you know, slightly outrageous thing to say, but I do think it took an actor to know that the second act of this play had to be Henry V. Saint Christmas Day. In his case, that meant putting his life on the line. So it's an extraordinary role. But he knew he had to play it that way. And he's got that level of intelligence. Not all actors do but he's educated enough and understands the overall world picture and the Shakespearean world picture enough to know that sometimes you have to draw a line in the sand and you have to say, this is bigger than my life. And when people do that, we take notice. But are you saying he's acting in his role? No. Or is he doing more than acting? I'm I mean, saying that, you he, don't wanna... that, it, that everything he's done up to this point in his life has brought him to a place where he understands the stakes and how important it is to act well, which is to be real. You know what I mean? Which I think that's what the best actors do. And I'm, this is, I'm not trying to promote acting in any shape or form, but I think what really great acting does is it gives the audience back themselves. Not all great actors are great leaders. That's right. They're not, and most of them aren't. There have been a few, but... This one is. And I think his lack of selfishness, in my perspective, to me, seeing, knowing what he went through and knowing the choices that he made. Yanukovych got on that helicopter and went home. He stayed. He stayed. He got his cell phone out and he said, Yatut, Moitut, which in Ukrainian means, I'm here, we're here. And the simplicity of that message and how important that message was, not just to the Ukrainian people, but to all of us to know we're here together and we can push back. That's the power and the function of our democracy. If we don't like it, we can say no. And that's, I think, he's set an incredible example for people who are dealing with these authoritarian regimes popping up everywhere now. So you can say no. That's what democracy gives us but we have to get together. Moitut, we are here. Liev Schreiber, thank you for coming to Firing Line. Thank you for having me. <laughs>